He's done it again. Max Verstappen wins the Belgian Grand Prix from a penalised sixth on the grid to stretch his victory streak to eight races. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is round 12, the Belgian Grand Prix. With heavy rain forecast all weekend and Max Verstappen copping a five-place grid penalty for new gearbox components, it seemed as though perhaps the stars were aligning for a rare non-Red Bull racing victory, or at very least the chance for Sergio Perez to get one back for himself. But the Dutchman is in just that kind of form. At a track he loves and on a mostly dry Sunday afternoon, he dominated the field and his teammate to win by more than 20 seconds. Charles Leclerc on pole never really harboured any hopes of victory on Sunday, but a rare day of a clean execution from Ferrari kept him on the podium ahead of Lewis Hamilton. Meanwhile, McLaren's excellent pace in a soaking wet sprint disappeared on Sunday, only for Lando Norris to suddenly find it again with a second desperate pit stop before half distance. To talk us through the decisions on a wet and wild weekend that led us inevitably towards another Max Verstappen victory, I'm joined by Scott Mitchell-Malm from The Race. Scott, how are you doing? I am all good, thank you. Obviously, settling into the to the rhythm of the summer break, um, nice, nice and early with this, uh, with, with piling into this podcast. So, <laughs> really embracing the spirit of the the season going into shutdown mode. Well, we get well, you only get two weeks of shutdown, don't you? Get according to the regulations. So, yeah, know, that's true. Free to choose it. Yeah, maybe my factory's open for five more days, and then we shut. <laughs> we, then we shut for shut for ten or fourteen or whatever it is in the regs. <laughs> Exactly right. Everyone should take a similar approach. Look, I can see, I'm glad to see that you're looking pretty dry as well after the weekend, because some of the rain in Spa was pretty <laughs> pretty legendary. I was going to say iconic, that's probably the wrong word to use. But uh, probably the worst weekend for it from the team's perspective, I guess, particularly considering how wet it was on Friday. The sprint weekend's already really difficult in terms of setup, because we've only got the one hour of practice, especially under the new format of, of um, the sprint weekend for this year as well. How much harder was it, given we practically had no practice this week yeah so i think a few teams were quite wary about spa as a sprint weekend anyway because one of the big compromises that you have to make is how low can you get away with running your car because for two reasons one when you go through a rouge um there's a lot of bottoming out and what you really don't want to do is be going too aggressive with that and then have an excessive plank wear because that will lead to an exclusion from either the sprint race or, or the grand prix and obviously once you're in on that ride height setting after practice, um, you're, you're 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 locked in, so it will be every single session that is impacted by it. So there's that element of it, and also with um, how low you run the car, you with the high speeds down the Camel Straight, and also the run through Blanchemont to the final corner, you do risk triggering some porpoising, which is what actually Mercedes found. So. On that side of things, it's all, it's already extremely um, difficult to judge um, your your kind of setup choices. But you throw in uh, a Friday practice session where the weather just curtails things, and you're trying to work out you know your, your drag and downforce trade off. It becomes an absolute nightmare. So I think the the forecast just reinforced all the concerns that a few of the teams had. But they can't have been surprprised because it is Spa, and that is <laughs> as you say like just it's just classic Spa weather. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, that is exactly right. What are the odds that the first time we run a sprint here has, happens to be the weekend in which there was so much concern they were coming up with an alternative ways to set the grid for the race, considering how much rain was coming at various times. Plenty of people lived through every minute of the delay of <laughs> almost every session, in fact. Only the race and practice, I guess, went delayed in terms of their running, mm. scanning back through my memory. But anyway, everything led us still back to a Max Verstappen victory. <laughs> That's sort of the long story short of this and every other yes. race we're probably going to do for the rest of the year. So looking at the race-defining move here, uh, we're not going to talk so much about the Grand Prix at this point, but rather about the sprint when we did have probably the more chaotic kind of outcome or make a chaotic sort of race we were maybe expecting for the Grand Prix, which ended up being dry. The sprint was wet, wet enough that it was delayed and was started behind the safety car, which we'll talk about in a second. But there was that critical time at which every driver, in fact, literally every driver wanted to pit from full wets to intermediate shortly after the safety car came in. Max, though, from the lead wasn't one of those, ceded the lead to Oscar Piastri, got it back eventually, of course. And this was all about garage position, which even for this podcast, I feel like is relatively niche to talk about. I mean, is, is there really a more advantageous, advantageous place to be in pit lane when there isn't a circumstance in which every car is trying to get in there? Is this something that is often considered? Uh, I think normally normally you don't have to worry too much about it. And generally speaking, the, the, the number one team's position in the pit lane is the preferable place to be. That's why you get rewarded with it for winning the championship. But it was obviously such a unique set of circumstances where you knew every single car would be piling in behind you. And it's it's a bit tricky because they're, they're coming in in different orders. So you don't know whether or not you're going to get... Um, if you're further down the pit lane, you, you'll get little breaks in that traffic because not everyone's obviously in correct garage entry order. But when you're max and you're at the start, everyone's got to come past you. So there's, it's almost like in that situation, there's not a more advantageous place to be, but there's probably less disadvantageous <laughs> places to be. Um, in that situation, it's a rare situation where you probably do want to be Williams or something like that, just to get to the end and just deal with it. Um, so I kind of, I kind of felt sorry for, for for Verstappen in a way, and also like any driver that any other driver that was second of their respective cars, because you can only have so much sympathy for the guy out in the lead. Uh, <laughs> but the the people that knew it was like it was like either you take a double stack and you're absolutely stuffed, mm. or you have to do a full lap on the wets which are useless and you're absolutely stuffed. So you kind of, you, you really had like no choice if you were the second car. You just had to lump it. But the difference is with, with Verstappen, ironically, obviously he was the first car, but as we as we say, you don't want to throw that position away from, from the lead with your, 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 your garage location. It's just easier for Verstappen to come back from that because one, the car's obviously better than any other on the grid and Verstappen's in such a you know rich vein of form. So the opportunity that he had to recover from it was so much greater than than, than anybody else. And um, he also, in the grand scheme of things, lost out relatively little because he did rejoin pretty close to Oscar. And then life gets a little bit easier when you've got a nice safety car restart to just nail the <laughs> slowest car in a straight line really, really straightforward. <laughs> so it's all set up inevitably for a max victory. The, this sprint happened in sort of like a sea of context in which the only trouble for Max, if we can even call it trouble, just seemed to be disagreeing with his engineer, which is its own kind of interesting 
I guess, aspect of this. Heard this in qualifying in particular, uh, where Giampiero Lambiasi, who's his engineer, was sort of talking back, saying, well, you know, if you're not happy, I'll let you set the fuel loads and things like this. No, of course, drivers can't do that. They're not, they're not able to do that. Well, maybe some of them can. Some of the cleverer ones, I suppose. A lot's been made of this back and forth with the engineer about, oh, were they being too snippy? Is it just the way their relationship works? What's your take on that? And is it... Perhaps the fact, does it perhaps illustrate that they are so comfortable in the lead that they're free to have these kinds of arguments whenever they like over radio, knowing that the outcome is still really the same? I think um, I think the comfort in the lead comes into it in some way, but that's more in races. When you see things like, when you see things like what happened in qualifying, I think the, the root of that, and this is going to bore people who have, talked, have heard me talk about this before, <laughs> it's Verstappen's just relentlessly and unbelievable high standards in which like everything matters to him more than anything else in the world like you 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 think he's reached a level of caring about something and then the next thing happens and you're just like oh, he just seems to care about that even more and it comes down to things like like because gp's point was gp's point was just like chill mate like we're through like we've got through to the session and max is just like oh, i don't care if we're only on like temp or whatever like he, he's he's so he's so um almost like process driven and knows that yeah you got away with it there but that could have been something that backfired um and then obviously gp comes back at him and it's just like well we could have done it this way and it would have been even worse chief so there's there's a nice like there's a really nice ebb and flow between them and what i like most about it is that gp is so good at um just i feel like he knows he's the only one who can talk to max that way and I think there's uh, I think there's an element of give and take. So he's happy to sort of let Max rant a little bit because he knows that his driver needs to vent. But he's also very good at saying the right things in the right way to get Max to shut up and get on with it. And and to to be fair to Max, like he does accept that. Like I I don't remember. I mean, he's had ones where he's gone on. But I don't remember ones where he's really really kept at it after being properly put in his place by GP. And it feels like that was the case here. The 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 times where I think that it's not complacency, but that that performance advantage and and, and gap to, to the rest comes into it is more like we saw in the race with like the little cheeky hint for fastest lap that GP <laughs> immediately slapped down. <laughs> <laughs> I do like I did like this whole back and forth, if not just because it was a somewhat unusual glimpse into the relationship between driver and engineer, which has to be really mm. close, really tight. Uh, and often the only radio we get on television, you can hear a bit more if you've got the app and all that kind of stuff, is pretty, I don't want to say just formulaic, but very procedural. Like it's very, because that's what you need when you're in the car going at 300 kilometers an hour. You don't need chat, you want information and details. And this I thought was just a really great example of actually these these this pair of people, as it inevitably is, needs to be on the same wavelength. I thought that was a really good example. Before we wrap up from the, the sprint and move to some of the other Grand Prix items to address here, the battle about wet running happens anytime it rains, even a little bit in Formula One. Even if there's the, the risk of rain, people start preempting the idea that Formula One cars might not run. We got a, a great example of, I guess, the transition between wet and intermediate tyre and spray and all these sort of topics coming into it at that sprint start, which started behind a safety car, and then as we we talked about everyone wanted to switch to intermediates i thought it was interesting that for the first time though pirelli talked about well yeah the wet tires kind of aren't really playing a role at all in formula one at the moment other than to run behind the safety car is this just sort of an acknowledgement that actually 
the, the wet tire model the way we've understood how wet racing works has kind of been evolved past by how fast the cars are now is this a really crucial realization in that way there, there, there are some things that i think people do need to understand about it and, and i think that does feed into it i i probably made myself pirelli public enemy number one um <laughs> after the sprint because i was just asking drivers constantly like what's the point of the wet tire um and like so if you saw I, I take a bit of credit if you saw that george russell line doing the rounds where he called it pointless or whatever <laughs> word it was he used that was me that got it out of him so but it was just one of about 10 it was one of about 10 drivers that i asked um and it, not in a baiting way but just in a I, I think the way i was trying to phrase it was like i understand and we all understand that visibility is absolutely key because it, i do genuinely believe it's much worse in this generation of car because if you look at the massive rooster tail of spray that comes off the back of the diffuser and rear, over the rear wing of, of these these cars out of that, it arcs up. It's so dramatic. And I don't, I don't remember it ever being this big. I, I even saw it in FP1 in Hungary when it was wet there. And there's something about Spa that's really bad, whether there's just a bit more water that sits on the surface because of the, 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 the way the, the track is, George was sort of hypothesizing, you know, maybe there's an element of because you've got, especially down the Kemmel Strait, you've got the trees lining it and maybe there's something that means the spray hangs in the air. It's like atmospheric. It, it's, it hangs in the air a little bit more. So visibility is absolutely key. So then this was my point. Like, I understand that we need to use the the full wets at the start because we're trying to clear as much spray as possible that's part of the reason for doing it and also because it is apparently very good at dealing in general it's very good at dealing with aquaplaning which the inter is not so so good at but is it not strange as a driver to just be on a specific set of tires just to do laps behind the safety car until the track's in a position where you can switch to intermediates is that not just fundamentally weird that's kind of what i was asking everybody and pretty much every driver bit on it and was just like yeah it's just so strange and some were stronger than others and i think leclerc put it really well when he said that the problem with the full wet is that the only time they can use it or the only time they need it are for conditions that we can't go racing in because the visibility is too bad. So the wet would actually be, I think, a partly competent, usable race tyre if you were running on your own in really wet conditions. But the problem is, as soon as you put even two cars together, that's too much spray and it's too dangerous. And the so what they're talking about is having this kind of like super intermediate tire which um such a pirelli name just by the bottom yes yeah exactly yeah 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 hyper hyper intermediate would be better Mate. uh they have like the super the hyper and the ultra of intermediate and no one knows what one's what and who's better <laughs> um, so they're talking about this but the point of it is beyond the stupid name is <laughs> is to have an intermediate effectively that is um that, that can just be used in a slightly more extreme range of conditions so then you would just be able to bolt that tire on for those safety car starts and and then stick on it um for for for, for, for good but my issue sort of coming to the point about wet races is i i am a bit concerned and, and do wonder if we're not that far off conversations about whether f1 races just don't happen in the rain like do, is that is, do we do we just not run in the rain because i i i would i need to see some data i need to see some actual evidence of this it's purely anecdotal but i am convinced that these rules have made it worse and if that's the case and we stick with ground effect cars going forward and not just ground effect cars but ground effect cars that are designed in a way to have that 
aerodynamic effect out the rear, you know, that rooster tail from the spray, I'm sure, is linked to the fact that we're trying to send all that dirty air up and over the car that's following behind. Well, if that's the case, and that's the long-term objective, then surely this, and, and there is a correlation, surely that means that this level of spray and rubbish visibility for everybody is going to be that bad longer term. We've also got slightly, you know, taller, bigger tyres than we had a few years ago, just the cars are bigger in general. So, if we keep going down this road, are we not just going to get to a point where wet tyres, wet races can't be run in full wet conditions? And that, to me, would be a real shame because when I was younger and watching as a fan, I loved watching wet races. I was so excited when it rained. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair call. It's also, I was talking to someone who uh, works in motorsport in the US and it's much rarer there, right? Like particularly thinking about oval racing where there can't be wet races. You know, we know the almost meme of the jet truck dryer in the US is it exists because you can't run wet in many circumstances. And it does feel, when you think about it in that lens, it does feel oddly almost integral to Formula One that you can run it in the wet. And we know so many iconic stories of wet running. There's got to be a solution. I'm heartened by the fact that, I, although I, I'm not convinced that maybe these this mudguard idea people may have read about is is the solution, uh, it's heartening that, that it's being thought about, that they are, we're approaching it in a really methodical way, in the same way we kind of approach these cars, which you know, at least in a really broad brush way have been successful on its aims, whether or not in the details and over time it is, is another question. But with that approach, mm -hmm. hopefully we can find a situation which wet running does sort of stick around in a more substantive way than just a lot of safety car time yeah. and then a rapid dive into the pits. Let's go back to the Grand Prix now. It was a 1-2 for Red Bull Racing, very comfortable. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! by Max Verstappen. Sergio Perez had a solid race to finish second, solid but unspectacular, perhaps we can we can call it. But inevitably, that means there's one more position on the podium to be fought after uh, by some more closely competitive cars. And in this case, it was Charles Leclerc versus Lewis Hamilton. And Leclerc got the podium for Ferrari in the end. Twice, Mercedes attempted to undercut Hamilton into third. The gap was always around four seconds on both of those occasions, roughly halved, but was never really close enough to really make an impact. I mean, do you read that sort of battle between them as more Mercedes having, and I guess every team having, but Mercedes having a bit of a 
Strange Weekend in exactly how they set up the car. I mean, they split the, the strategy between setups between their cars. Or is it more perhaps, if you're a team battling Ferrari, you're kind of banking if there are two pit stops, Ferrari might make a mistake with one of them. <laughs> yeah, you've just got to go, okay, well, you know, the law of averages are on our side here. So there will be an opportunity. We just need to try and take it. But unfortunately... Um, it was the uh, it was the I mean it was the it sprint in particular, wasn't it? That they had. Uh, I, I was worried about what Ferrari were going to play out with the sprint. It's like, oh god, there's multiple cars in the pit lane. They've got to think about two. This is going to be a problem. Um, but they actually, you know, on Leclerc's side, they the, they handled the Grand Prix um, really well. I think I think it's just that that fight behind Red Bull just feels like a lucky dip like you go into every weekend and just like McLaren Aston Martin Ferrari and Mercedes just throw their names in a hat and someone just reaches around and pulls it's like okay this is it's it's your turn to to be second best this weekend um and there's all sorts of factors that that, that pile into it with you know whether track characteristics suit a particular car whether the team nails the setup if one of the teams has brought an upgrade that weekend you know grid penalties driver performances it's it's I, I've, it's one of those like I, I don't say this to disrespect the job that Verstappen and Red Bull are doing because, in all jokes aside, like I, I said this when Hamilton was dominating with Mercedes, like you just got to take your hat off to them and accept that you're witnessing, you know, greatness in action. But damn, do I wish that that fight for second was the fight for the championship because it'd be amazing. Yeah. It would be so so good. And on this weekend, I think it was just one that it was a bit like Austria where Ferrari, you know, had the car in a nice window, Leclerc was driving really well, the team didn't make any mistakes, and boom, they're second best again. So I think it was more Ferrari coming to the fore slash Mercedes finding that this track exposed, yet again, that I just don't think they really understand these rules and where their car is because they're talking about porpoising being back again and Russell was saying with a bigger rear wing, sort of maybe he was feeling it a little bit more uh, Toto Wolff, I think, said that Hamilton had to lift through Blanchemont, which is mm. easy flat because of how much the car was bouncing around at times. And you just think, is this not where we were 15 months ago? Like, how, how have you not moved past this? So uh, factors like that come into it and all of a sudden you lose a tenth or two's performance. And that is the difference between Hamilton sort of being stuck in that limbo position behind Leclerc, never being far enough back to think, oh, I'm out of this, but never being close enough to to launch an attack. And it just opens the door for a team to snip ahead. And this time it was Ferrari, which is probably a welcome result for them going into the summer break after they thought they were back on it after Austria and Canada. And then they went to Britain and Hungary and got their backsides handed to them. <laughs> Void as well, I guess, by the fact that although tyre wear seemed so uncertain in this race, given the lack of practice, didn't seem to be a massive problem for them. Well, in fact, stuck ahead strategically in terms of, and in terms of pace of Mercedes. So a good sign, I suppose, for Ferrari. Big gap between uh, behind Lewis Hamilton, at least till he made that, that very late stop to take the fastest lap. Uh, next fastest car was Fernando Alonso. So, and I guess another lukewarm race for Aston Martin. But I want to talk about McLaren, which is the team we've been talking about a lot in the last month since it brought its upgrades, has been a, a front runner. I feel like front runner is a word we need to phase out, though, when we're talking about five cars, half of the grid, and considering none of them are close to, Aston, <laughs> to, to Red Bull Racing. So I, I don't know. I'm yet to decide what we should call them. Upper midfielders? I don't know. Super, super midfield. midfield. The super hyper midfielder midfield. is the one that finished second, <laughs> and then the super midfielders are the one back. And then maybe McLaren was just more of a, I don't know, ultra midfielder. Could be anything. Uh, anyway, to talk about McLaren, really <laughs> up and down weekend for this team. Again, partly linking back to the fact there was not a lot of practice. But this track, 
in many respects should have suited this new car really well, but for a few key parts, as they really hastened to say ahead of this weekend. We saw Oscar Piastri do really well on Saturday in the sprint in really wet conditions, second on the grid and at the flag, taken out of the race very early on Sunday. Lando Norris, though, had the, must have had the full gamut of emotions in the Grand Prix, starting the points, out of the points by lap five, in the pits for the hard tyre, only t- a driver to take the hard tyre, switched again after 12 laps pretty much from the back. And then all of a sudden, the chequered flag wave, and he was seventh. How do we make up for the disparity on the tyres for the McLaren? I mean, medium hard, no good. Then after lap 17 on the softs, he's back in the points. Yeah, it, it confused McLaren because they've, they've they've found at different tracks this year that, you know, the softer compounds suit them at one track and then the harder compounds suit them at the other. And that was one of the things Norris was talking about after the race was really need to understand the sort of science behind that. You know, is it something to do with track surface or is there something about how we're using them that um, that, that that is such a big factor there? The, the only thing I, I, I would say is that Norris's pace on the soft tyre out side of those laps when it started to rain which is what completely saved his grand prix it that pace wasn't stunning like it 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 was kind of it was kind of where he was and we saw in qualifying the fact that they were i think sixth and seventh in 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 qualifying for the main race that that kind of was where their level was here with the the setup and the car configuration that they had so i think it was just that they were able to get themselves back into that position because of that opportunism and the way that the soft tie benefited them around the laps on laps in the in the damp, and and that's it. And then the fact that they had the bigger rear wing meant that Norris was able to. It wasn't quite stressing the soft tire as much through the middle sector. It wasn't um, it was protecting it a little bit, which enabled him to do such a long stint on the soft. So that kind of went back in their favour in that moment. So I think it was. I think it was more about sort of the circumstances around how they use the soft and for how long for that made the performance on the soft look much more impressive than the outright pace on it. I think across the three compounds, the McLaren just wasn't super competitive, but I think it was a surprise how bad it was on the hard, and that and that was what they admitted afterwards. They were like, we, we in hindsight, clearly this was the wrong tire to go on, but and maybe if they'd had some dry running earlier in the weekend, they'd have clocked that sooner but there was obviously some kind of disconnect between what their simulations were saying about how usable the compounds were and actually how that was in reality because the first stint for Norris was governed by the big rear wing being lunched in a straight line and then being stuck behind slower cars in the middle sector when the car was feeling okay on the medium tyre but when he got onto the hard he didn't even have that upside of the medium in the middle sector because he was struggling with the car and it was moving around and he just didn't like how it felt so he had the worst of all worlds because he was absolute lunch meat on the straights in sectors 1 and 3 and then wasn't going very quickly through sector 2 so i i i suspect that i suspect, suspect it's the hard in particular that was a, an outlier and confusing and then the medium and the soft were just the performance on those tyres were just a, a function of the How car much that McLaren had in terms had of McLaren's potential? And we're still so early in this second version of the McLaren in terms of its upgrades, really only a month in, a couple of races in. But how much do you think was left on the table by virtue of the fact there was no practice time? We've, they've talked about the massive rear wing. They had one other skinnier wing, not a low downforce one, but they didn't use that one. Obviously didn't fully understand the tyres. And then even Lando Norris on Saturday night after the sprint was talking about, yeah, this setup is not going to be good if the race is 
dry and lo and behold it was largely correct was is it true can we is this too much of an outlier i guess to, to assess amongst those other races because of all those circumstances in terms of mclaren's ultimate potential with this car I think um, I think every team could probably point to having left performance on the table because of the the circumstances of the weekend. So, I'm I'm I don't want to give McLaren too much of a free pass and say, ah, oh, well, you know, just unlucky. Maybe they maybe they were the worst affected. But I think every team would have said, oh, you know, you probably could have made your car go a tenth or two faster if you'd been able to optimize the setup more. But for McLaren, there was that one specific element of that rear wing choice which made they they were the outlier. So. There's, there's a clearly an element there of that's one specific thing that would have made their car better that weekend that other teams wouldn't have had. So I think if you'd have seen, I think if you'd have seen that slightly lower drag rear wing, I suspect with the upgrades and the way that car's been performing, we probably still would have seen it being, you know, the second best behind Red Bull in the middle sector. And it would have been slightly better, obviously, in sectors one and three. And the the impression at the end of the weekend after qualify uh, sorry after the sprint race McLaren were saying that they didn't think that the trade-off for less drag would be worth it if they'd gone to that wing but by the end of the Grand Prix they were kind of admitting oh no that would have definitely been a better <laughs> one to race with um so there would have been a bit more there I reckon best case scenario probably Norris is you know comfortably running ahead of Alonso he's somewhere in that you talked you said earlier that gap that big gap behind Hamilton he's probably somewhere in there which is obviously not as impressive as the last couple of weekends but it's still an obvious improvement on where they were pre-upgrade so uh, this is probably a track that without an out and out lower drag solution like some other teams had probably put a ceiling on their performance which was probably going to be fourth best ahead of the Aston Martin and that 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 could have been achievable if they'd done a better job with and the I think it's fair to weekend. say probably where any of those teams could be at any given race as you were saying earlier there's so much track dependence in this tight battle the difference between second and, and what's now fifth you can often just ride off to being the circumstances of the track. Maybe they don't get everything out of the car. There's not really any shame in being second one weekend and then fifth the next, unless you're consistently towards the fifth and uh, slipping further back, as maybe the problem for Aston Martin. But that could well be a story for another day. There's one other aspect I want to look at this, and that is the relatively few drivers who went for a one-stop strategy. Obviously, a great amount of uncertainty about how these tyres were working because so little dry running. What little dry running we did have over the weekend was usually still on a relatively wet track. This was pretty much properly dry track. Very unusual for the course of the weekend. George Russell was one, gained a few places out of it after a bit of a, a poor start. Lance Stroll was another and Piers, Pierre Gasly another after that, all with kind of different outcomes. But I guess the, the question I really want to ask is, are you surprised so few drivers tried it when there was so much uncertainty in this race? Or is it just natural that everyone kind of ends up doing something relatively similar when no one knows what's going on? I, I guess there is an element of um, you don't want to roll the dice because... You, you you just don't know what what the outcome's going to be like if i if a comparison to the previous race for example when um when ricardo was pushing alpha tauri to put him on to you know uh, put him on to a really really long stint get him into free air in hungary um that <clears throat> that that had the benefit of you know he'd done a couple of longish runs in practice that at least gave him a feel for it They'd seen that there was relatively low deg, and that had been confirmed in the first stint as well. So there was a 
a race situation logic to doing what he was asking, but there was also some cold hard data under like to underpin it and give them confidence that not only could the tires handle it and the car handle it, but the DR could handle it as well. So then you're just like, okay, well we're going to do a bit of a gamble. We're going to ask a lot of you and all of these factors here, but it's not like a total roll of the dice because there are that you know there are known factors involved. Spa, I feel like the circumstances of the weekend and even the race meant that actually none of that was so certain. So it was difficult to know exactly exactly how to play it. And I think that probably did inject a little bit of um, of caution into things. Uh, it's almost like with a counter to to, to those three, like, like Stroll was um, Stroll and Russell were were really, really fast after that um, that switch of tyres just around when the rain came, just after Norris. And that's what stopped Norris being continually the fastest car on track because as soon as those guys were out there on fresh tyres, they were going quicker than he was. Like, even that took, like, a few laps, really, for people to buy into, oh, clearly we need to get onto fresh tyres because the used ones are... So it just felt like everyone was just in an inherently conservative mode. Um, probably <laughs> probably frustrated at the same time with, obviously, with being in DRS trains. And I, I heard at least three drivers talk about how they're sick of looking at the Williams gearbox um, for anyone that got stuck behind Alex Albon <laughs> for a while. But it just felt like one of those where once you were in the race, you were in the race. And no one really knew what or how to do anything to get out of the situation they were in. <laughs> that is the always the perverse impact of a lot of rain, is if it doesn't arrive on Sunday, then you can sometimes get stuck in a really unusual and straightforward race. Sometimes it's great, lack of practice normally is, but I guess we've also had a lack of, lack of practice plus sprint, which does change the circumstances a little bit. But as we said at the start, the bottom line of all this was that Max Verstappen, well, he knew how to get through, I suppose. He got all the way up from sixth, won this Grand Prix, eighth in a row, 12th in a row for Red Bull this season, 13th overall. I could keep I could keep talking, but we'll, we'll revisit this maybe after another 10 races and see where we land. Scott, it's been a successful podcast. We've talked about plank wear, porpoising, garage position, and the ultra-intermediate tyre. Enjoy your <laughs> summer break. Your headquarters may now close for the mandatory two weeks. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much. <laughs> It's a little alarming that 12 races into the season, we're already running out of superlatives to describe Max Verstappen's performances. Hurtling towards a new record for consecutive victories, and with Red Bull Racing already breaking new ground, Verstappen is demonstrating an unprecedented purple patch of form that makes it all too imaginable he could sweep the rest of the season. And wouldn't that be an incredible thing to see? Thanks very much to Scott mitchell Malm for joining me to debrief the Belgian Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato. Enjoy the mid-season break and I'll be back for the second half of the campaign starting with the Dutch Grand Prix at the end of the month. I'll catch you then. Stay ahead of the pack with the latest racing news and interviews from the Hammerdown Racing Report, your source for regional racing action as well as the national scene.
Every week, we recap racing action from all around Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan and cover national racing series from the world of outlaws to NASCAR. Plus, get all the latest racing news. Join hosts Scott Hammer and Ron Miller, along with different featured guests each week. From dirt to asphalt, we have you covered. The Hammer Down Racing Report, available weekly on your favorite podcasting platform.